Well, good morning. You know, one time a pastor was asked, you ever think of quitting? And he said, well, yeah, once or twice, last week. I think what happens sometimes in ministry, we, we often reach a place where we feel as if we're overwhelmed. Now, I have to say, I happen to not be in this place at the moment. So I'm grateful for that. But I've certainly been in a place in my life at times, maybe not twice last week, but certainly enough to know that there are moments where you just feel like you just can't do it anymore. And it's because the demands of ministry are severe. They're significant. And what happens sometimes for all of us, whether you're a parent raising young children or a parent of older children, you know, little kids, little problems, big kids, big problems, Or you're a new mom or a new dad or you have elderly parents that you're taking care of and those that are infirmed or sick that you're caring for. Or you've lost a loved one. Or you've reached a place where you just can't take it anymore. Whatever the case may be, we've all been in a place where we wanted to quit. And it would be wrong to think that the heroes of the Bible never reached that place. They never, they they just were always, they got up, it was always daisies and sunshine, and and they just, everything was always great. They always were trusting the Lord. You need to know that wasn't true. As we look at God's word today in the book of Acts in chapter 18, Paul travels from the city of Athens to the city of Corinth. We talked a lot about his ministry in Athens last week, but this morning as, he be, as we begin to look at the, the ministry that Paul has in Corinth, it's significantly different, far more successful than the ministry in Athens, but there was a point where Paul was ready to quit. Have you been there? Because if you have, I hope this morning's message will minister to you. Let's pray. Lord Heavenly Father, we thank you. You are a good and gracious God. You love us so well. And you know our infirmities, you know our weaknesses, you know those moments where we've just had enough. Life is difficult. It's been exceedingly more difficult for some of us over the last two years. And it continues to be challenging economically, politically, morally. And there are moments where we cry out to you and say, Lord, I'm kind of done. I I need a sabbatical, a vacation. I I need to just step away uh, five minutes alone. And we reach those places. and, And Lord, we need you to strengthen us. We need you to encourage us. I pray that for those who are feeling that way this morning, that this morning would be that time where you strongly and greatly encourage us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, Paul arrived in Corinth, and he met some people there. And, you know, I find that it's always really great to meet people of, uh, who are like-minded. One of the most encouraging things that can happen to you when you feel alone is that you suddenly aren't alone. Right? We say, oh, I feel so alone. And then you meet someone, or a friend, or you, you, you connect with someone in ministry, or you just, you just have a, a commonality with people, and, and then all of a sudden you just don't feel alone. That, that's a bonus. That's a plus. That's a good day. And so we read in verses 1 through 3 of chapter 18 in the book of Acts that after this, that is after Paul had been in Athens, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth, and there he met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla. And because Claudius, that's the emperor, had ordered all the Jews to leave Rome, Paul went to see them. And because he was a tent maker, uh, as they were, he stayed and worked with them. And it says every Sabbath he reasoned in the synagogue trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. 
So Paul had been alone for some period of time. He had to leave Athens. He, he really sort of was, was sent out on a ship to sail away from the area of Berea and, and Thessalonica in northern Greece, which is Macedonia. And he finds himself in Athens. Things don't go exceptionally well, but then he's alone. He's still alone. He's waiting for his ministry team to join up with him. And as he is now in Corinth, what does the Lord do? He provides fellowship. He provides the encouragement he needs. Paul is there waiting for Silas and Timothy to join him. And Corinth was a famous city in Greece. And it was under Roman rule. In fact, the ancient city was about 48 miles west of Athens. So not that far away. The ancient city was destroyed by the Romans in 146 BC and then rebuilt about 100 years later. So it's a relatively new city rebuilt. This new city was settled by a colony of freed men from Rome. So the character of this of this city is different than some others that Paul had been to. It was located on an isthmus, which is a very narrow strip of land, joining the Peloponnesus to the mainland. So it's a it's an area that's open to ports on both sides. Okay, it kind of think about Panama, the Panama Canal. Think about a, a small strip of land and, and being able to travel through either a canal or over land, a, sh- a short strip of land, and getting goods <clears throat> from one side of Greece to the other without having to sail through the more dangerous parts of the Mediterranean. So because of that, it was a city that was, was quite populated and heavy on trade. Uh, it was a strategic location, a huge commercial center, much like New York might be uh, for us today in, in modern times. It was also the seat of government, Roman government, for the southern portion of Greece called the Ki. So you have a political center, you have a port center, you have a commercial center. Uh, it is quite a place, quite a city at that time, and a large mixed population of Romans, Greeks, and Jews. Now, it was noted for its wealth and its luxurious yet immoral and vicious habits. The habits of the people were disgusting, to say the least. And because of that, they would say things like, he lives like a Corinthian. Now, I take issue with this, but many times you'll hear people, sometimes it comes up in Hollywood or on television, people will be like, yeah, he's from Jersey. (laughs) And that's supposed to mean something. I don't know what it could possibly mean, But sometimes we get a little bit of a reputation, like, you know, I've heard people from the Midwest and people from nicer parts of the country come out here and they, and I say nicer because they're just, they they act nicer generally. And and so they, they come here and then people are like, yeah, what do you want? And they think we're mean. We're not mean. We're just sincere. We say what we mean. We mean what we say. But sometimes people get the wrong impression. I've heard people tell me, you know, people in New York and New Jersey are just so mean. But, you know, I've been to those other parts of the country where people are nice. And they may, may be really, really nice to your face. Oh, bless your heart. But meanwhile, in their hearts, there's something going on. See, the good thing is we wear our hearts on our sleeves. So if we tell you, you know, I really like you, we really like you. And if we don't, you'll know. So when someone lived like a Corinthian... It was something that really described an, a drunken and sensual lifestyle. People knew what that meant. It was also, that is, the city was also a home for the temple of Aphrodite or Venus. She is the goddess of love and lust. So that should say it all. In fact, the temple itself employed 1,000 priestesses, 
uh, who were actually prostitutes. So that kind of gives you an idea of what was going on in this city. And this is where the Lord led Paul. Well, Achaia, the Roman province, was a large province, but Corinth was a large city. And these two individuals, Aquila and Priscilla, they're natives of an area called Pontus, we're told, which was a province in Asia Minor, modern Turkey, which is across the Aegean, where Paul and Silas and even Barnabas in the past, they administered there. So the, these are Jews from that part of the world that are, that are closely connected to where Paul is from. For Paul was raised in Asia Minor in Cilicia in the city of Tarsus. So there's a connection immediately there. Uh, they were Christians, as far as we can tell. They had been Christians for some time. Uh, they may have been among the early Christians that became Christians on the day of Pentecost. Because in Acts chapter 2, verse 9, we're told that there were Jews there on the day of Pentecost from, guess where? Pontus. So, probably, that's the case. We don't know. But they had been banished. They made their way to Rome. No doubt they were there uh, for matters of uh, commerce and trade. But as they were in Rome, they were banished by Claudius, who was the emperor. Now, Claudius was an emperor that had succeeded Caligula. And if you know that name, you know that, you know, this was an extremely wicked person. Now, Caligula was the fourth emperor, uh, excuse me, Claudius was the fourth emperor of Rome. So there hadn't been so many emperors. But this one decided that he was going to ban all the Jews from Rome. And there were political reasons for this. A lot of times it came down to trade. If the Jews were wealthy, <clears throat> and they were doing well, which they generally did, uh, in, in matters of business, uh, what would happen is, and we saw this, we've seen this over the centuries, uh, the local population decides, you've got to get these Jewish people out of here, They're, we, we can't compete with them economically, and so they would ban them, take over their business associates and, and business connections, and then, you know, maybe they'd let them back in later on. So there were these games that they played economically, and politically, and we're not sure exactly what the case was, but we know that they had to leave for some period of time. Uh, the th interesting thing is, it's not as if uh, Claudius hated Jews and generally treated them well, especially those from Asia and Egypt. I think it was because they were in Rome that he had an issue with that. Isn't it an interesting thing about sort of racism and hatred? Uh, that they'll say, people who, are, who have hate in their hearts towards certain groups of people will oftentimes say, oh, I'm okay with them until they move next door. You know, so I think it was probably because they were in Rome. In about the middle of his reign, about 49 AD, for he reigned from 41 to 54 AD, he banished them all from Rome, and Christians were included in this edict as they were considered a Jewish sect. So the Christians had to leave too. Jews and Christians, though, were allowed to return again to Rome soon after the edict. So again, it wasn't really a matter of anti-Semitism as much as it was a political and economic decision. Well, they would later, these individuals, Priscilla and Aquila, would later minister in areas of the, the world that we're familiar with from the Bible, such as Corinth, Rome, and Ephesus. And Paul went to see them because, as it says, they were tent makers. Tent makers who were working in Corinth. Now, the word for tent maker can imply not just tent maker, but a leather worker as well. Someone that works with leather, because tents were generally made of skins. And so that was the case. These were, these were skills that were necessary in the ancient world. Paul apparently had this skill, and so did Aquila and Priscilla. And as it says here, he went to see them because he was a tent maker, as they were, and, and stayed and worked with them. So as I look at this, I realize <clears throat> this is a connection that God had made for Paul at this particular moment. You're going to see he's at a low point. 
But as he comes into this city, imagine what he must have been thinking as he looks out at all the immorality and all the things I've already described and the commerce and the materialism. Imagine how overwhelmed he must have been at the thought is, this is where you've called me to minister, Lord? Imagine. And he's by himself. His ministry team is still up north. Imagine that moment and how overwhelmed he must have become. I don't have to imagine. I have felt like that. <clears throat> I remember distinctly when, when several of us who are here still today, some of our pastors and leaders and others, when we first started meeting here at Calvary Chapel on a, a Wednesday evening back in 2003. And I can remember after having been involved in ministry for about 17 years in New York City as an assistant pastor and worship leader, I, I, I knew that we were... We, we were Venturing out in faith, but at the same time, I didn't expect things to escalate. I expected to have a small group Bible study for a couple of years. I really did. My expectations were low, and to be frank, I was okay with it. Because I had been so entrenched and so involved in the commuting in and out of the city, I was actually looking forward to things being scaled down a little bit and not having as many responsibilities, okay? So about six months, seven months into meeting on Wednesday nights, I remember the first time we had to put out extra chairs and there were over 50 people. And I can remember feeling really, really depressed. Does that surprise you? <laughs> because I knew I had enough ministry experience to know what, what happens, the responsibilities, the burdens. I love God's people. I, I did this and, and, and was teaching God's word because I was called to. But at that moment, I felt tremendously overwhelmed like things were getting ahead of me and I couldn't keep up and I wouldn't be able to keep up or meet all of the needs. It was just, and remember, there weren't that many people alongside me at that point, so it was a little overwhelming. And I went home that night very disturbed in my spirit because I felt like, oh my goodness, what if we hit 100 people? And I had to work through that and the Lord encouraged me. And within a short period of time, just a couple of weeks, I embraced what God was doing. And at 10 months of doing that, we started Sunday mornings, and we've been here since 2004. But I had to get over that feeling of being overwhelmed. I had to reach the place where I realized I couldn't do anything to meet the needs of God's people, and then surrender that to God, and then God was good enough to encourage me. So I can relate to how Paul must have been feeling at this particular point. But I know it must have been incredibly encouraging because I know it was encouraging to me when, when Pastor Joe, who I'd met already and, and, and knew through several people, came to, we got together, Joe, remember at the, the uh, TikTok diner? And we had breakfast and we were talking and he was super encouraging, as he always is. And we ended up sitting in the car and praying together and Joe shared that the Lord laid upon his heart that he was going to get involved in the ministry here. And uh, Sal, who wasn't a pastor at the time, but Sal was already a part of the team that was, that was involved in this church, and others were involved. But it was, it was one of those things. I mean, my brother Dave was there as well. It, there, there were enough people around me that I didn't feel alone, and I remember how, how I don't think I would have been able to get through it if it weren't for those individuals and others, who I haven't named, who were right there at the beginning. So I can understand why this was so important to Paul. Why these individuals who were tent makers, who he could connect with, were right where they needed to be. And Paul was right where he needed to be at the right time. He was looking for work and he needed to support himself. And by the way, he had no problem supporting himself in the ministry. I didn't come on staff here for a couple of years. I was bivocational almost 
my, my, my oh, I guess pretty much the entire 17 years in, in, in New York. Uh, toward the end, I, I worked part-time at the church after 9-11. But when I came here, I, I didn't receive a salary for, for a couple of years. I understand what it is to be, as we call in ministry, a tent maker as well. And I, I really didn't desire to leave my job. But then when the church began to grow, it was necessary. But it wasn't something I was interested in doing. Uh, Paul has been fortunate enough to have a team and have been able to sort of support himself with funds from others. But now he's all by himself. He's got to work. He's got to eat. He's got to work. And he had no problem doing it. He wasn't lazy. He wasn't afraid of hard work. In fact, the Jews taught that every man should have a trade. I really believe you should. Uh, when I first started when I became a homeowner and I first started doing home improvement projects, I didn't know anything. You know, now I can do a lot of things. Not everything, but close to everything because you learn over time. You can't be afraid to have a trade. I often think if I had to work again, there are a number of things I can do, okay? And not all of them are sitting behind a desk. And I think it's a good thing for young people especially to learn a trade. Learn to do something valuable other than work in like a services industry or in a white-collar job because eventually you're going to need to be able to work with your hands. If, if you're physically capable, I think that that's an important thing. And the Jews felt that way as well. Well, his position as a rabbi, for he was a rabbi, was no exception. Rabbis worked. And he stayed and worked with these individuals, Priscilla and Aquila, as a full-time tent maker. They provided him with not only fellowship, but a job and a place to stay. They supported him with encouragement. And he used whatever time he did have off to preach the gospel, which, as we're told there in verse 4, was on the, on the Sabbaths, because that's the only time he wasn't working. Anyone who's done ministry and who does ministry uh, part-time knows the, the most challenging thing is you, you're, you've got divided priorities, right? You have a family, you have a job, and, and you're trying to meet all these needs, and you wish you had more time. And, and then many times, you know, the opportunity comes up, you get into full-time ministry, and then you realize, what have I done? I can't tell you how hard it was for me to give up my career. I had a career, a really good career for 20 years, Working in a Fortune 200 company, I was very happy, very pleased to be there. I did not want to leave, but I left. Shortly after leaving, I realized I made the right decision, but it really took making the decision to realize that I made the right decision. So it was a scary time. I was a little afraid. I'm going to be honest. I was fearful. So I can really relate to where Paul may have been at this time, but Paul did what all of us need to do regardless of the circumstances. He preached the word of God. And he did so in the Jewish synagogue. Look at verses 4 through 6. Every Sabbath, he reasoned in the synagogue trying to persuade Jews and Greeks, for Greeks did attend the synagogue. And when Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching, testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ, but when the Jews opposed Paul and became abusive, he shook out his clothes in protest and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am clear of my responsibility. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Does that sound like a man who's a little frustrated? When I first read that, I thought, well, that's a little harsh. The way I see it, I, I see Paul just got to a point. I mean, you get to that point, right? He, 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 now they're abusive. They're abusive to him everywhere he goes. Now they're abusive, and I could just see the man just throwing up his hands. It says he shook out his clothes. That would be the, you know, we, as Italians, we don't shake out our clothes. We, we throw up our hands. So he should throw up his hands and be like, ah! You know what? And then he says something. This must have been really encouraging, right? Your blood be on your own hands. 
on your own heads. I am clear of my responsibility. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Now, I don't know if you have this in your culture, in Italian-American culture. If we say these words to you, these are very, very significant words. I wash my hands of you. Woo! You don't want to wash your hands of somebody, or at least because what that—it's like the, the pilot washing of hands. It's like it's like wash my hands of you. Whatever's going to happen is going to happen to you. I don't care. That's a pretty severe statement. <laughs> I heard it a lot in my life growing up. So, <laughs> what I know, what I know about that phrase and that attitude that Paul must have had at this time is um, that he was frustrated. I know that because of what happens next, but you could tell. You could sort of tell this guy has kind of reached a point where he's had it. And I don't blame him. The guy's been beaten, stoned. I mean, listen, he's really taken it on the chin. And everywhere he goes, they chase him out of town. He, he has to flee. You know, we've seen it over and over again. Same story. He goes to the synagogue. It's okay for a little while. He offends some people or they get jealous. Then they beat him up, throw him out of the city. He has to run for his life. How much of that could you take before you finally re- reach a place that he's obviously at at this point, right? So I, 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 feel, I feel like, you know, I actually feel a little bad for the guy. I think to myself, man, like he's doing everything God wants and this is what he's got to contend with. Have you ever felt like that? And maybe you're not going into the city of Corinth to minister, but maybe you're just raising a couple of kids. I mean, parents quite literally give their lives to raise their children. Good parents. But all parents are required to do a lot for these Little children that sometimes aren't that grateful. Sometimes they say mean and wicked things. Because as I said the other night at our Bible study on Wednesday night, foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. It has to be disciplined out of them. So you you get these little sinners. They're pre-sinners. You don't have to teach them to sin. They're really good at it, actually. All human beings are. And and, and then you just, you know, one day you wake up and you think to yourself, I'm a man. Can I give these kids away? No, you don't actually. No, you actually do think that, don't you? Um, and, and, you know, and, and I'm so grateful because my wife and I, part of our ministry is we love to babysit. We love to spend time with the little ones. We used to spend time with young adults. We were involved in young adults ministry here and also in New York for many years. And then, uh, you know, as you get older, you're sort of in the grandparent phase. You, you much prefer to spend time with the little ones. Like I said, little kids, little problems. Um, and so we've been spending a lot of times with some of the little ones here, and we really, really enjoy investing in them, uh, babysitting, spending time with them. And it's so rewarding. But you know what probably the best part of it is? The look on the parents' faces when they get to spend two hours away from the kids just enjoying their lives for a little bit or having dinner uh, and getting a little bit of a break. That's, that's, that's what really motivates us. Uh, and we love to be a blessing. And so, you know, I'll have a sign-up list in the back. No, no, no. As the Lord leads, as the Lord leads. But uh, that, that, is, that is definitely a blessing. So I say all that because you reach a point sometimes in your ministry, in the things that God has called you to do, where you definitely want to quit. And if, if you don't want to say it out loud, that's fine. I'll say it for you. You definitely want to quit. And I got to believe that that's where we're at right now. So with Paul. Uh, so as I look at this, he goes to the synagogue. He addresses the, the, the Jews, the Greeks, preaching the gospel, doing everything he's supposed to do. And, and then he tries to persuade them from the scriptures that Jesus is the Messiah. And that begins to start problems. Okay, he's able to preach full-time. But now because he's full-time, he gets more attention and more notice. And as Silas and Timothy arrive, 
probably the reason he was able to preach full time is because they brought support from the Philippian church. Uh, we, we seem to think that uh, at this point they had, well, Paul talks about it when he writes to the Corinthians, that the Philippians, they, they provided funds so that Paul could do more ministry. That's part of it. Uh, certainly, he was able to preach full-time because of the support, but also Silas and Timothy may have even worked to support Paul. So you got two guys working and three guys, you know, living off of the funds that two guys are able to earn. And that's kind of how it works sometimes. Uh, anyway, all of that to say that they really were working hard. I'm sure Paul is tired. You're working six days a week and you're ministering on the seventh. So hopefully I've painted the picture of why Paul is where he's at at the moment. He's then, as we're told in verse 6, opposed. Now, opposed is tough, but abused is tougher. He was abused by the Jews. This effectively prevented Paul from continuing to minister in the synagogue. That door is now closed. Oh, great. Now I can minister full time and I have no place to minister. I got to believe at this point he really hit bottom. He responded by leaving in protest, having been faithful to preach the truth of the gospel. He was responsible to preach the gospel to them. He's not responsible, and neither are you, for the reception of the truth. I want you to remember that. I want you to take that and put that in your pocket and bring it home with you. You are responsible to preach the gospel. You are not responsible for others' rejection of the truth. Parents, when your children don't listen and you have properly instructed them in the word, you are personally not responsible for their rejection of the truth. I I don't know if that helps, but I want to tell you something. You're not. You still got to deal with it. They're still your children. But it's their decision. You know, they have free will just like you do. You can tell them all the right things to do. Have you noticed they don't always listen? Don't put that on yourself. Well, that's kind of what I think Paul started to do. He started to get depressed because he thought, what, what good am I? I'm a failure. I went, I went into this, this place and now look, the same thing happened again. Nothing seems to change. You can apply this to whatever area of life you're in. It applies to all of us, not just to Paul the Apostle or to those involved in ministry. He decided to no longer preach the gospel to the Jews, at least at that moment, He decides to go to the Gentiles. I'm done with the Jews. I mean, he's a Jew, but I'm done with them, you know. And and then he goes to the Gentiles. But you see, God wasn't done using Paul. And he wasn't done ministering to the Jews. He just, he was having a moment. Ever had one? And what we see in verses 7 through 8 is very interesting because God always meets us where we are when we're at our lowest point. Amen? Notice it says, Then Paul left the synagogue, in verse 7, and went next door, to the house of Titius Justice, a worshiper of God. Crispus, the synagogue ruler, and his entire household believed in the Lord. And many of the Corinthians who heard him believed and were baptized. little encouragement, just when you need it most. I'll tell you something. If it weren't for those moments of encouragement, I would have quit a long time ago on a lot of things in life. You can quit on your marriage, you can quit on your kids, you can quit on your job, you can quit on your schooling, you can quit on your ministry, you can quit on your friends, you can quit on your family. But God is so good to us to encourage us when we need it, how we need it, where we need it. Amen? That's exactly what happened. (laughs) Paul left the synagogue and he proclaims the word of God. Now check this out, in the house next door to the synagogue. Couldn't preach in the synagogue, right? Couldn't preach in the synagogue. 
Uh, goes to the house next door. He's in the house of Titius Justice. Now, Titius Justice was a Gentile who worshipped God. His house being right next to the synagogue made it easy for everyone to find. They'd come to hear Paul. Oh, I, I thought Paul was speaking. Oh, now he's next door. Kind of like, imagine planting a church next to a mosque. Or planting a church next to a synagogue. Or, or planting a church next to like a, a Jehovah Witness hall, you know. People come and they, what's going on over there? Those people sound like they're having a good time. So, this is God. This is the way God works. And he's well received by some of the Jews and many of the Greeks. In fact, this is really encouraging. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, the one that's next door, and his entire household believed in the Lord. And many of the Corinthians also believed and were baptized. So this, this is a good day. Things are looking a little brighter. You would think that Paul would be, you know, back to his normal self, right? Well, look what happened. Or look what, look what we see in verses 9 through 11. One night, the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision. Do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent. Now, I'm not one to take scriptures out of their context and apply them willy-nilly. But this is the encouragement that the Lord gave Paul in a vision when he was at a low point. And maybe this is what you need to hear this morning. Maybe you literally need to hear these words from God, and maybe God would use them to speak to you. Do not be afraid. Are you feeling fearful? I mean, the world's doing everything it can to make you feel that way. Do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Oh, the world is doing everything it can to shut you up as a Christian. Keep you quiet. Do not be silent. Do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent. Why? Here's what we read in verse 10. For I am with you. And I know that's something that you can apply to your heart because God is with us. Amen. In fact, Emmanuel, God with us. For I am with you and no one is going to attack and harm you because I have many people in this city. So Paul stayed for a year and a half. Wow. Teaching the word of God. What changed? Paul changed. How did he change? God changed Paul. The only way you're going to get through that feeling of depression or wanting to quit is God has to change you. God has to speak to you. By the way, that's why you're here this morning. It may come in a vision. It may come in a dream. It may come through someone else. Or it may come through a sermon like this today. But when you put yourself in a place when you're feeling low, oh, I can't go to church today. I'm too depressed. That's the day you need to be sitting there in that pew, receiving from God's word. And you're here today, and I hope that God is encouraging you. Now, the Lord encouraged Paul in a vision to continue proclaiming the word of God in Corinth. If he didn't need that encouragement, well, I don't think it would have come. I think he's really thinking, you know, maybe I'm done here. Paul was fearful. Why do I know that? Because it says, don't, don't be afraid. Why would God say, don't be afraid, unless Paul was fearful? Paul was fearful, clearly hesitant to continue ministering in this city because he knew what comes next generally. He was discouraged that most of the Jews had rejected the gospel. He had experienced severe persecution in most of the places that he had preached. He expected the inevitable opposition, persecution, beatings, and floggings that came every time he opened up his mouth. He, in fact, probably expected to be imprisoned or exiled from yet another city and from his brothers in Christ, having to be all alone yet again. Well, the Lord told him, assured him not to be afraid. Not to be silent, 
for God was with him. He told him that he would not experience the severe persecution that he anticipated. That must have been a little encouraging. He revealed to him that he had many people in Corinth that believed or would believe eventually. Paul had a work to do. So significant that he spent a year and a half there. Now, Paul generally spent a couple of weeks to months in a city. There's only two places that he spent an extended period of time, and one of them is Corinth. He would go back to Corinth in the future for another three months in the future, but in planting this church, he was there for 18 months, a year and a half. And then later on, he ended up being in Ephesus for three years. So there aren't that many cities that Paul considers home. This would be one of them. But it didn't start that way. Not at all. The Lord will often give us a vision when we've lost sight of his plan for our lives. Have you lost sight of his plan for your life? God will give you that vision. He'll speak to us when we're afraid and ready to give up. He'll assure us of his presence, his protection, and his plan to reach the lost. He will, if you listen, if you'll let him speak to your hearts. Corinth was a wicked city, but where sin abounds, grace much more abounds. See, the the more sinful places are the places where God does his best work. Or are you not living proof of that truth? The Lord's encouragement empowered Paul to minister in Corinth for the next year and a half. He learned through experience the importance of using tact and diplomacy, which was one of Paul's problems, if you haven't noticed already. He could have been from Jersey. He was, he was brusque at times. He was blunt. And that oftentimes got him in trouble, as you can see by his reaction in the previous paragraphs, right? So he learned that. He, he chose to avoid conflict with the Jews that had rejected Christ, which is a good thing. You don't want to look for conflict. But Paul was a guy that, that really, he thrived in conflict. He was one of those guys that seemed to enjoy it almost, you know. And I think, I think at this point he's starting to learn, maybe that's not the best course of action. He simply committed himself to teaching the word of God, teaching the word of God to those that were willing to listen. And when you do that, that's great, because then you're surrounded by people who want to hear what you have to say. And that's a good thing. By the way, he also wrote twice in Corinth during these 18 months to encourage the Thessalonians while he was there. So he was writing letters to the church in the north where he had been, where he was chased out of. God was using Paul in southern Greece. How did it all change? Well, God did the changing. You know, then uh, just to point something out, and this is the, the, the proof of the pudding is in the eating of course there was opposition. So we read in verse 12 that when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul. And they brought him into court. This man, they charged, is persuading the people to worship God in ways contrary to the law. And now notice this. Notice this. Just as Paul was about to speak. You see, a lot of times when Paul opened up his mouth, he didn't always make things better. You ever been there? Gallio said to the Jews... If you Jews were making a complaint about some misdemeanor or serious crime, it would be reasonable for me to listen to you. But since it involves questions about words and names and your own law, settle this matter yourselves. I will not be a judge of such things. So he had them ejected from the court. Hmm. Notice, speaking of the Jews, then they all turned on Sosthenes, the synagogue ruler, and beat him in front of the court. But Gallio showed no concern whatsoever. I guess God is faithful. Amen? So they make this united attack. They bring him to to, to court on false charges. 
By the way, Gallio was known historically to have been a most kind, fair, and loving individual. So the right person in charge makes all the difference in the world, if you haven't noticed in the last year. They accused Paul of persuading Jews to worship God in ways contrary to the law. That's what they accused him of. They couldn't accuse him of rebellion or starting riots. He hadn't done that. They could only find fault in his teaching and not with any of his actions. So things went well, and Gallio refused to hear the case, had everyone ejected from the, the, the court. Now, the Lord protected Paul from the Jews that attacked him, and the Lord kept his promise, as he always does. He kept his promise to Paul, didn't even need to defend himself. God is good. They failed to prevent Paul and his team from continuing to minister in Corinth because God had a plan. Paul was at the center of that plan. And so the Jews turned on a man named Sosthenes. Poor guy. He was the ruler of the synagogue, must have taken over after Crispus left the synagogue. They beat him in front of the court. See, they had anticipated that Paul would be publicly beaten. That's what they wanted by the authorities. They thought he'd be publicly beaten. When that didn't happen, they wanted to beat somebody. And so they publicly beat their ineffective prosecutor. And they beat him up. Sosthenes had been the synagogue ruler until he was beaten by the Jews. Now listen, Sosthenes had either refused or failed to indict Paul at the instigation of the Jews, and they were very unhappy with this. By the way, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1, which is Paul's first letter to this church, that he writes later on, Paul mentioned a leader named Sosthenes. Paul's mention of Sosthenes would have stressed the authority of his epistle. It's quite likely that Sosthenes became a believer in the Lord as well. Listen, what you and I, what we need to know is that God is always working. Can I hear an amen? I'm going to ask the worship team to come up. We're going to prepare to receive communion this morning. God is always working always working. If you are feeling the way that Paul felt at this time, you are not alone. If at times you question the effectiveness of your ministry or your life, you are not alone. If you lose your cool and get frustrated with people, you are not alone. What I can tell you is that God wishes to encourage you. And he wants to encourage you with these words. He wants you to not be afraid, to keep on speaking, and not be silent. Let's pray. Lord, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your great encouragement. You know when we need it, and you find a way to speak it to our hearts, whether we're listening to the radio or whether we're watching a a movie or a television show. You can reach us in any way, but you always reach us through the study of your word. You can speak to us through a brother or a sister or a family member or a book we're reading or a prayer group. But when we gather on Sundays and on Wednesdays to study your word, we know you always speak to us because our hearts are open and you desire to encourage us through your word. We thank you for this encouragement. We ask now as we prepare our hearts to receive communion that every heart here that comes to the table would know that by coming to the table, they are simply saying... I believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. I believe that he died on a cross for my sins, that his death saves me from my sins, from the penalty of sin. That he died on the cross to pay that price that I could never pay. 
That he rose again on the third day to give us newness of life. And as we believe not only in the death of Christ on the cross, but his resurrection from the dead three days later, we know that the promise that he will come again is just as true. That he will come again to judge the living and the dead. And our faith in all of these things, the gospel of Jesus Christ, compels us to come to the table to receive these elements which symbolize these truths. And that if we don't really believe them, or if we doubt them or we reject them, that we really have no business coming to the table. I pray that every heart here would make that decision in their hearts right now, that as they come to this table, they know exactly what they're either affirming or reaffirming about who Jesus is. Lord, we ask you to continue to bless and bless this time of communion in Jesus' name. Amen.